The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to John chapter 4. John 4, uh, we'll start there and go several different places uh, today. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, Lana and I were young in our marriage, still even at that point. Uh, we had... Uh, Micaiah and uh, Abby was actually on the way when we moved to seminary. We didn't have a whole lot. And, and one of the things I didn't have when I went to seminary uh, was a computer, which is pretty necessary when you're in seminary because you do a lot of writing and, and uh, everything has to be typed. Um, and didn't have a computer. And the little church that we were part of uh, at that time, uh, one of the members of the church graciously, when they heard that, uh, showed up at church one night, one Sunday night, and uh, and said, "Come to the car. I've got something for you." And opened the trunk, and there was this computer that they had they had they'd gotten a new one or something. And this was this, they said, "You can have it. Just take it, and hopefully you can use it." Well, it was great, and I used it for about a year or so. But about a year in, uh, this computer started to malfunction. It started to just. It was slow. I'd get the, the, the blue screen all the time and all this stuff. And, and uh, I kept thinking, what in the world have I got to do? And uh, now I don't have that problem because I'm an Apple guy. Uh, that doesn't happen with, with Apple products, right, Ed? That's right, yeah. Okay, uh, but I kept getting this blue screen, and I kept thinking, what am I going to have to do? Well, I went to a computer guy, and he said every now and then, he said it's probably a virus, and he cleaned it off. But he said every now and then what you need to do is you need to, to totally reboot your computer. I wasn't doing it. I was just leaving it on all the time. And he explained it this way. And I don't know if this is actually accurate, but this is the way he explained it to me was that when you do that, it takes, it's like being in a library and you've been in there and you've pulled all these books off the shelf and you've left them laying around. And when you reboot, it kind of takes all those and it reshelves them so that your computer's cleaned up again and, and it's more organized and it runs more efficiently. Is that right, Ed? Yeah, computer, computer go-to guy right there. Just confirm that. But, uh, but that was helpful for me, and it helped me to kind of finish out seminary on this computer, to sort of limp out this computer for the rest of the time there. What I'd like to do for the next three weeks is for us as a congregation to reboot. We're not going away from anything that we've done. We're not, we're not scrapping anything. But I think what can happen from time to time is... We can get so used to being here on Sunday, being here on Wednesdays, doing all the ministry stuff that before long we don't realize that we've pulled all these books off the shelf and we're cluttered and we don't really remember why we're here. And so for the next three weeks, I want us to reboot and come back to these three vision statements that are going to guide everything we do. These have been guiding us for a long time. Uh, Real worship. Real change, real purpose. Uh, we've got real people on the front, of that, front end of that, and that's, uh, we, we're, we're not going away from that. We're affirming that all the more, but I didn't want to take a Sunday and preach on that. Uh, but we're going to start this Sunday with, with real worship, and uh, normally I preach verse by verse, most of you know this, verse by verse, through books of the Bible, but for three weeks we're going to move topically so that we can sort of reboot and then jump back into Exodus. So John chapter 4, I want to read one verse here just to get us started, to kind of frame this sermon, and we'll look at multiple passages as we walk through. Uh, John 4, verse 24. God is spirit, 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, I don't often do that. I don't like doing that. I don't like taking one verse of scripture and just reading it alone because there's a context that comes before and after. There's an entire conversation. There are people involved. And so we've got to guard against that. I'm not, I'm not saying to you, this is our new Bible study method. Just open your Bible, drop your finger, and read there for your devotion. Doesn't, doesn't always work out. You'll get into some, some pretty crazy things. God wants me to sacrifice a pigeon today. I don't, you know, so don't, don't do that. But I, I do want you to see today what God is seeking. God seeks worshipers and he seeks from those worshipers real worship. What is real worship? I, I pulled some definitions. Louis Giglio, uh, many of you've heard that name. Uh, Louis Giglio defined um, worship as our response both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. There's one definition. John Frame wrote this. Redemption is the means. Worship is the goal. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history, the goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. And when we meet together as a church, our time of worship is not merely a preliminary to something else. Rather, it is the whole point of our existence as the body of Christ. There's a lot of good things in that. Here's one that I particularly like when I I came across this. William Temple wrote, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of of, of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. These are some definitions that I pulled from from Christians throughout history, uh, modern and, 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 and historical as well. But I want us to walk through, and even though I think we've got as a church a pretty good understanding of worship, I want us to be reminded of some things. So first, on one hand, worship is life. Uh, My son loves basketball. And uh, he didn't come up with this saying, but we hear this pretty often. Ball is life, right? And uh, and those are snickering over here. He didn't come up with it. It's it's, it's a website. There's an entire culture. But I went and I Googled this, and I found the website, ballislife.com. And it's it's really, their, their slogan is, it's a movement. It's a lifestyle. Now, think what you will about basketball, and some of you couldn't care less. Some of you are passionate about it. Some of you hadn't thought about it in years. You think, man, if I got on the court, I'd certainly break something, and, uh, and I'm kind of in that stage of life myself. But really, the way bald is life looks at basketball is the way Christians should look at worship. That worship is life. That, that it's, it's a movement, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's everything we do. It's when we go to work, we work to the glory of God. It's when we parent our children, 
We parent to the glory of God. It's when we love our spouse, we love and respect to the glory of God. In every area of life you could, you could go, it's, it, that is worship. We worship in all things. Everything I do, I do in pursuit of and, and for the glory of God. That's, the, that's not always true of me, but that ought to be the, the attitude of our hearts, that everything we do, we do for the pursuit of and for the glory of God. And this is why 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So in one sense, worship is life. But in another sense, on the other hand, worship is church. Uh, Worship is not just this generic, everything in life is worship. God has called the church together to be worshipers. Uh, I've shared this with you before. The word word in the original language is ecclesia, or, or a version of that. And basically it means a gathering or a group. God has put together an ecclesia, a church, to gather together for the specific purpose of worshiping him. In Exodus chapter 7 and all through him leading them out of bondage in Egypt, what was the reason he repeatedly gave of why he would bring them out? Because he wanted them to come out so that they might serve or worship him. He was bringing them out, not just bringing them out to say, okay, now you're free, just go run and do whatever you want. He was bringing them out to be a people for his own glory. They couldn't, when God brought them out, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and they worshiped there, but they couldn't stay at Mount Sinai forever, so God instituted these festivals every year, these three festivals every year that would be centered in and around Jerusalem, where they would travel back and they would come to Jerusalem for these festivals for the purpose of gathering to worship. When the people turned aside from worshiping God and God alone to Idolatry to worship idols. God judged them by sending them into exile. Uh, but God, even while sending them to exile, made promises that one day there would be a renewed worship in the way that it originally was created to be. That there would be this renewed gathering of the people of God for the purpose of worshiping Him. We, we see this in verses like Isaiah chapter 2 that says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of, of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And so God made these promises to one day bring them back. And in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands and he preaches the sermon at Pentecost, we see this happen. The Bible tells us that the mighty sound of a mighty rushing wind, tongues like fire, and people there from all these different places, all these different um, ethnicities and, 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 and tribes and tongues, but every one of them heard the gospel in their own language. And God was fulfilling the promise that he had made to, to draw a people, to gather a people to himself. And what happened? When Peter preached the sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 believers were, were born again that day, and they began to devote themselves to gathering together, to look at the apostles' doctrine, to pray together, to, to give praise to God. You can look at Acts 2 to see that. And we're reminded that 
That's been the case for the church ever since. That all through church history, there has been a central gathering of the local church for the purpose of worshiping God. And this is not a purpose that will one day end when history comes to an end. Because the Bible tells us in Revelation 4 and 5 and really throughout the rest of the book of Revelation that one day that we will all be gathered around a central place, the throne of God, to worship him. So worship is central. It's a gathering. It was God's idea. It's not just worship is life. It's worship is church. And we gather for this purpose. Corporate worship is not optional for any church. When we gather, I want you to hear this. When we gather to worship, we're doing more than gathering to pray and read scripture and sing songs and give offerings and listen to a sermon. What we're doing when we gather here is we're manifesting the reality of heaven. Because while we worship here, all of heaven never ceases to worship. And so we display to a watching world and to one another the reality of what's going on in heaven and what one day will be the reality for all who are his. So quickly this morning, I I just want to to walk through and ask, ask this question and give you four answers to it. What happens in real worship? Uh, what happens in real worship? Now, I, I'll just be honest that, that I'm taking this pretty much straightforwardly from uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. This is not original with me, but it is biblical. Wayne Grudem and, and anyone who writes a, a systematic theology, there are several out there, take the Bible and look at topics like worship and go through the Bible, comb it, and find every reference, every part there, and then put a systematic doctrine together of what the entire Bible teaches about that subject. And so that's what I want to just look at for the next few minutes. What happens in real worship? Number one, we delight in God, and He delights in us. We delight in God, and he delights in us. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, sometimes we come into a gathering like this, and it's easy for our minds to wander, and we can be in the middle of singing because maybe singing is not your natural thing. Maybe you just don't sing all the time. Uh, You're not in the shower singing. Some of you are, but you're not driving a car and singing. Some of you are, but but maybe it's not really your thing. And so you come in here and we begin to sing and all of a sudden your mind begins to drift and wonder. Maybe to tomorrow night, to that game that Jason Smith is looking so forward to, right? And maybe, maybe maybe that's what happens is we begin to, lose our attention on what we should delight in and begin to delight in the things of the world. But what happens here, we've got to fight for and labor for delighting in God. I found myself as we were singing these these songs a minute ago, forcing myself to, to look at the lyric and to think about what I was singing, to not just be checking out in my mind and singing these songs that are familiar to me, We labor to delight in God. Psalm 84 verses 1 and 2 and 10 say, How lovely is your dwelling place, 
O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This should be the attitude that we come to worship with, to labor to delight in God. And I just want to ask this question to you today is, do we really worship like that? Do we delight in the Lord? Or do we sometimes view the service as something that we endure before going to lunch? I can remember having this attitude as a kid and as a teenager. I've told you before, I knew exactly how many lights were in that room. I counted them multiple times because anything that would pass the time, right? I, had, I didn't have the attitude that I was there to delight in the Lord. God, when we really worship God, we, we delight in him and he delights in us. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now that's one thing. And and if we really thought about that, that makes it easier for us to delight in the Lord if we begin to think about the fact that he has done all those things. But the scripture doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 17 and says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So there's this... There's this singing back and forth between us and God. As we delight in God, God delights in us. As we sing loudly of his praises to him and about him, God doesn't sing our praises. He sings his own, but he sings gladly over those who delight in him. There's nothing that brings him more pleasure than that. Do we, I just want to ask this question as well. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God delights in us? Do, do we believe that the Lord has taken all the judgments against us away? I think sometimes we come into worship and the reason we can't really delight in the Lord is because we don't really believe that there is now no more condemnation against us. In Christ Jesus. We're, we're claiming the cross. We're claiming he's our only way and our only hope. But there's something within us that holds on to, I'm too guilty. I'm too dirty. Do we really believe that he's taken away all the judgments against us? That he rejoices over us with gladness? Some of us need desperately. Some of us don't. But some of us do need desperately to to see the face of God smiling over us as we delight in Him. Number two, we, number one is that we delight in God, He delights in us. Number two is we draw near to God and He draws near to us. 
Uh, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic, says, Worship in the New Testament church is not simply practice for some later heavenly experience of genuine worship, nor is it simply pretending or going through the, the, the motions of some outward activity. Instead, he says, it is genuine worship in the presence of God himself. And when we worship, we enter before his throne. This is what Hebrews chapter 12 is speaking to in verses 18 through 24 when it says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the, the, the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We, we don't come, uh, we don't come to, to God, we don't come to worship as though it's some practice for something else. We come in a real way. We don't come to something that we can't really touch. We're, we're not like those Israelites that came out of Egypt to Mount Sinai that couldn't approach or get close to the mountain. We come to the throne of our God. This is not simply going through the motions. This is real worship. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I just asked the question, are we treating worship as practice or pretending or mere activity. I would, I would love to challenge you as your pastor that here at the beginning, as I challenged you last week to make the resolution to be more godly this year, one of the practical steps is, is that, that you would have the attitude, determine in your mind that when you come into this place, while all of worship, all of life is worship, that when you come into this place, God has gathered us for this purpose, that you would set your mind to delight in God and to draw near to him. One, I'm convinced one of the reasons that we don't do that is because we don't guard this time. One of the things that I do on a regular basis is I guard Saturday night. I try not to be out late at all on Saturday night because I want to get in bed. I do that not because I'm getting old. <laughs> That's part of the reason. Uh, but more than anything, I do that because I know that I want to have a fresh and alert mind. I want to come into this place so that in a way that I can love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. I'm well rested for this task. And maybe that's a step that you could take to challenge yourself to say before we go, let's remind ourselves we're going to delight in God and to draw near to him. Do we understand the gravity here of what we enter to do? Third thing that happens in worship is God ministers to us. God helps us. God meets needs. I mean, through the scripture, he, he meets our needs. We, we read scripture and sometimes uh, preached Pat Brock's funeral yesterday. And, uh, and one of the things I shared was that 
so many times I would walk out, out after preaching the, the sermon and I would go out into the narthex or be standing around and Pat would walk up to me and she would say, I felt like you were speaking to me. She said that so many times and I thought, Pat, I'm not reading your mail. I'm not like, I don't have, you know, uh, private investigators following you around or something so I can target you. It's just the word of God. God meets us and ministers to us and helps us as we read the word of God, but he also does it through one another, as we encourage one another, as we, as, as we sing these songs and we look across the, 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 the aisles and the rows and we see one another singing them and we're, we're saying these things to God and about God, but we're also saying to our brother and sister, these things are true. And we want to pull one another along. And so God ministers to us in this way. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is not a waste of time what we do. God ministers to us here. He speaks through his word. He speaks through one another. But also, he speaks through his very presence. Through his very presence, as he draws near to us, he strengthens our faith. He makes us aware of him and his presence. He refreshes us. Sometimes we come in and you say, well, I've gotten plenty of sleep, but I'm just dry in my walk. And, and that's the moment where you, you walk out of here and you say, God just knew where I was. And he just, he just made me come to the stream, the calm water, and he just refreshed me. God leads us sometimes as we worship. We're wrestling with how to go, where to go, what, what we should do in some situation. And God leads us. He convicts us of sin. God ministers to us uh, in, when, when we gather to worship. Um, I love 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 that says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That when we come, it's it's we we come knowing that there's never gonna be a Sunday where all of a sudden, bam, it clicks and we're transported from how we are currently to just like Christ. It's not gonna happen in one Sunday. If you're counting on me to preach that sermon, I need to be looking for somewhere else because I'm going to let you down. I'm like that coach that gets fired at the end of the season. It's not going to happen. What happens is as we come in and we sit under the word of God and we rub elbows with the people of God and we draw close to God and he draws close to us and we delight in him and he delights in us, we are transformed into the image of Christ one degree at a time. One degree to another. And it's this lifelong being changed. Fourth, and I told you there would be four, there's actually going to be five, and I've got these real quick. Um, number four is when we really worship God, God's enemies flee. And this is one of the reasons why this is so crucial that we set our reset, we reboot when it comes to, to the, the issue of worship. Only the Lord would send his people into battle by sending the choir and the praise band ahead of the army. But that's what he did in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You can read about it there. Instead of what we would do, send the army in, 
<laughs> Let the guys play and sing on the side, maybe. We put the band in the stands, right? God puts them on the battlefield. And what happens there is God slaughters the enemy. Defeats the enemy. The enemy turns and runs and flees. And in the same way, when you and I come and we choose to delight in God and he delights in us and we draw near to God and he draws near to us and he ministers to us, what happens is the enemies that oppose the gospel, the enemies that oppose the truth of God's word, the enemies that oppose the conviction of sin, flee. Part of the reason I think that so many churches go through week in, week out, seeing very little change is because the enemy is let in and allowed to run rampant. Are we really aware that we do have an enemy? That he does seek to kill, steal, and destroy? One of the ways we battle him is to really worship. Number five is this, last one. What happens when we really worship? Unbelievers know that they are in God's presence. Now, when we plan our worship services, we don't plan our worship services for unbelievers. We welcome unbelievers. We welcome guests here at Abner Creek. We love you, and we love when you come. But we're not planning it for you. And, And that's not a slight on you. It's just that when God commands the church to worship, he commands the church to to worship and build one another up, to edify one another. But when that happens, when the church really worships, though evangelism is not the, the primary objective of worship, it can be an outcome. Because when an unbeliever comes in and he sees a people who are delighting in God, drawing close to God and sensing that These people are delighted in, and God is drawing near. And he sees people being helped and ministered to by the activity of God. There's no more hindrance of an enemy attacking them. They begin to look, and they begin to see a reality of what's going on here. They sense the presence of God, that God's really here. The person who may have come in saying, I don't believe in all that God stuff, Lana saw a bumper sticker the other day on a, on a car that said, born just fine the first time. And, and maybe that's the attitude that someone comes in with. But I believe that as the church really worships, an unbeliever can walk in with that attitude and the Spirit of God can begin to work and tear down walls and cause a dead, hard heart to come to life and be made pliable in his hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that's what Paul was concerned about. He said, look, if, if all of you, when, when, when you come in and all of you begin to speak in tongues, the unbeliever will come in and sit and he'll think, what in the world? These people are crazy. But if you really worship, they will see that there is a God among you. So church, here's what I'd like to do. I want to just open up a time to respond to this, to reflect and respond. But what I'd like to do is for the church, more than anything, is I'd love to call you to pray. None of this, none of this will come to any fruit unless we ask God to make it happen. 
And so I, I'd like for when Ethan comes and plays in just a minute, just to open these steps up across the front and ask you to take advantage of them. Yeah, you can stay where you are, and, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But I'd love to see the church tangibly come together and pray. And number one, maybe confess personal sin that I've made worship just a thing that I go through. Number two, asking God, God, I, I don't delight in you like I should. I, I, I don't draw near to you like I should. I don't expect you to minister to, to, you, to, to me like you should. And, and God, I'm just asking you, God, help me to delight in you. Help me to draw near to you. Lord, I need to change, and I won't change on my own. So God, make worship a place where you change me this year. Maybe you also want to come, number three, and just say, Lord, I want to do my part to wage war against spiritual forces that oppose the gospel and the word of God. So, Lord, help me to really worship, to see the enemy flee. Number four, maybe you say, you know what? Even though, God, worship is not designed for the unbeliever, Lord, make me more engaging with unbelievers in my life to invite them and bring them so that they might come and see a real God among us and be saved. So I open up the steps for that. Uh, I'll be seated down here on the front row. love for you to come speak with me. If there's something that I've said that you have a question about or I can pray with you in any way, but uh, you come uh, as the Lord leads. Let me pray, and then we'll respond. Lord, we love you. God, I, I thank you that you draw us near, that you invite us to come, that Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we can draw near with boldness, that we can come with boldness to your throne. Hebrews 4 tells us the same thing, that if we will come near, that you will, that we will find in that moment the grace and the mercy we need. Lord, I pray for this church, starting with myself, and flowing out then to every member of this, this body, Lord, that you would do in us a work that we can't produce. God, make us really delight in you, really draw near to you, really worship God. Make us a real worshiping church. I pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.